Looking for a graduation gift to inform, inspire, and encourage? When you give a subscription to Christianity Today, you're giving redemptive, relevant news and thoughtful balanced dialogue about the church, current issues, and public theology. Visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to get a discounted student subscription for the graduates in your life. Starting at only $2 per month, this gift will engage and grow their faith throughout the year. Click the link in the show notes or visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to order now. I think we jump too quickly to praise and we don't stay in the lament long enough. So I tell this story about my mom where this was about 20 years ago. She was in her 60s and she showed me the condition of her knees. And each of us have like one kneecap on each knee. She had five. Mm. And the reason she had five kneecaps on each knee is that she had been in prayer, lament prayers, and especially interceding for her children and her grandchildren. She prayed on her knees every day, at least an hour or two a day, uh, praying for her church, her family, her children, her grandchildren. And when you're doing that for decades, your knees actually can't take that kind of pressure. And so her knees cracked open. And her knees now conformed to the shape of the floor so that she can kneel before God every day. And that kind of lament is what we're missing in the church. This is Where You're From, a podcast for those who believe it's important to stop and listen before we speak. Join us as we ask another Christian thought leader where you're from and discover how their life experiences and expertise even if we may disagree with something they say, offer us an important perspective that's worth thinking about. Welcome to Where You're From. I'm Rasul Berry. Let's be real. God is too big for any one person to fully grasp or understand on their own, which means that all of us possess incomplete pictures of God. And not only are our pictures of God incomplete, we also live in cultures that impact the way we see God. And like the pilot who depends on her co-pilot to see what might be in her blind spots, oftentimes we need someone outside of our culture and church background to expose some of the blind spots we have. And this is a gift. When someone can help us see what we may be missing in our lives, it's something to be celebrated. And that's why I'm excited about today's episode. My guest today is Dr. Soon Chan Ra a Korean-American theologian whose outsider perspective is very helpful in exposing some of the lies many of us believe. He has degrees from Columbia, Harvard, and Gordon-Conwell Universities, and he is currently the professor of church growth and evangelism at North Park University, and has published some of my favorite books, including Prophetic Lament, The Next Evangelicalism, and Unsettling Truths, which he co-wrote with Native American theologian Mark Charles. But this guy is far from a stuffy intellectual, and that may be because of a very surprising childhood experience in South Korea. This is Dr. Soon Chan Ra on Where You're From. Well, I was born in Korea. Actually, I can go back even further than that. My family heritage is an important one to me. On my father's side, my great-grandfather was actually one of the founders of the very first Baptist church in the country of Korea. Wow. And uh, it was actually in Pyongyang, which some of you know is the current capital of North Korea. Hmm. But the history is that most of the spiritual renewal and revival and the birth of the church on the Korean Peninsula was actually in North Korea. And many of the North Korean Christians fled during the war and came down to Seoul. So my dad's family is actually part of that lineage. 
And so in my family tree, they were the founders of the first Baptist church in all of Korea. My mom's family is more the Buddhist family, and her family comes from the southern part of Korea, and they moved up during the war as well. So my mom and dad met in Seoul not too long after the war, but they actually met at church, and both of them were members of Seoul Baptist Church in Korea. When I was in Korea, and this is uh, something I don't <laughs> talk about too often, but I was actually a child model in Korea. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> I was on like soap operas and television commercials, and they still sell this in Korea, believe it or not. Postcards that I did photo shoots for 45, 50 years ago. Wow. They still sell in Korea in some of these souvenir shops. So if you're ever in a souvenir shop and you see a five-year-old boy that looks like me on one of those postcards, it actually could be me. <laughs> then we came to the U.S. and we had a different set of circumstances in the U.S. My parents went through some very difficult marital challenges and so my dad left my family which meant that my mom, who was a single mom with four kids, without, you know, college education, didn't speak English very well, we ended up moving as a family to a rough neighborhood in Baltimore. Wow. So I wanted to kind of rewind, because first of all, we heard it here first, Soon Chan Ra, supermodel at the uh, <laughs> age of six. So I, that, that, I, I was not expecting that. That's a scoop. That is great to hear. But you have written that to understand the American story, you have to understand the immigrant story. Yeah. And I think that's really fascinating. I want to double click on some of the dynamics that you kind of talked about in terms of from your own experience, you know, why you would say that. So like first, yeah. what were some of the pressures or reasons your parents came to the U.S. in the first place? That's such a huge move. Yeah. So, I mean, like a lot of immigrant families, a lot of it was kind of economic opportunity. But for many Asian families, it was economic opportunity combined with educational opportunity. Mm. So for my family, especially for my dad, he came to the U.S. for the economic and education opportunity. But he actually struggled quite a bit as an immigrant, as an outsider. Mm. My dad was an extraordinarily gifted artist. But he always had trouble holding a job because as an immigrant, he was always looked down upon. His English wasn't good. So they saw him as an unskilled laborer, which is kind of the typical view of the immigrant. And I think in the big picture, that's probably what led to the tensions in our home. He was not respected the way he might have been respected in Korea. I didn't get that when I was eight or nine years old when he was not around. But many, many years later, I understand now what it would have felt for a man who was a person of color to walk into an all-white world who had all the gifts and skills that he had, but to be consistently told that he didn't measure up. Yeah. That's why he couldn't keep a job or find a job. And that actually, again, led to some of the tensions where my mom, who did find jobs, usually in the service industry, she was a nurse's aide, she worked in grocery stores and in carryouts. So that created a tension in the family where my mom became the bread earner and my dad wasn't. Mm. And that's something that I've embraced as an older person and as someone who kind of maybe emerged out of those struggles that some of the best growth and some of the most significant formation occurred during those years of struggle. Mm. We didn't have the things that we can look back and say, you know, hey, the typical American family. Yeah. That wasn't quite our family growing up. But out of that came some maybe strength of resolve and spiritual foundation that I actually treasure at this point. I didn't back then mm. when I was eight, nine years old. I'm but sure. many years later, I can say, yeah, God, God was even in the midst of all those struggles as well. Yeah, that's amazing. And that piece that you talk about of what it means for people of a certain status and educational level to come to another country and then suddenly be looked at 
in a different way. You refer to that, I think, mm-hmm. as downward mobility. Yeah. And yeah. and I can imagine that that would feel really difficult. That would put strains on relationships. So how about you, right? So that was your parents' kind of entry point. What was your immediate reaction to being in the States? Sure. Being like a model and an actor in Korea, I guess I was kind of the center of attention in many ways. But then when we moved to the United States when I was six, this is in the 70s, there's no such thing as cute, you know, Asian kids on television. (laughs) But what I remember is feeling like that outsider and wondering why I was feeling like an outsider. And this is still something that I struggle with today of, you know, after nearly 50 years of life in the United States, there's still times that I feel like an outsider. And I think the most painful part is that feeling like an outsider of my own church community, not because I don't believe in the same things. You know, I believe in who Jesus is. I believe in who God is. I believe in the very basic tenets of our faith, but because I look differently or because my story is different. So that's been part of my journey of trying to figure out how does that work? How are outsiders' voices, voices that are typically marginalized, how are they actually central to our understanding of who God is? Yeah, we're going to definitely get into that. But I want to kind of just help like paint a picture for me of when were some of the first moments that you realized that you were seen as an outsider and that you weren't anymore kind of part of the in-group? Yeah, so I mean, this is very early on in elementary school where you begin to see that. And I remember one of my first day in elementary school in the U.S. During recess, I'm sitting on a swing and I didn't know when it was time to go in. So I just sat on that swing for like two hours, I think. Wow. <laughs> and they didn't know where I was. I, I don't know why they didn't come looking for me, but I just sat on the swing. And then finally I said, maybe I should go back to class. And I did. And then, you know, everybody's like, where were you? I mean, I didn't understand what people were saying, but there was this big ruckus. And it's just what it means to be an outsider and to feel like, hey, I don't quite fit in yet. I don't know the rules. I don't know what's going on. It's my first day of school. Yeah. Tell me a little bit more about Korean culture, and is it individualistic or communal? What's it like? Yeah, so Korean culture generally would be more communal, and that's kind of Asian culture in general would be a little more communal. And that's where your identity is a both and. It's your individual identity, but your identity in your family, your identity in your community, your people group, that's a very central part of your identity. Whereas in Western culture, you might end up with more of an individualistic identity. One of the distinctions I make is Western culture tends to center around the concept of guilt, and Eastern culture or Asian culture tends to center around the concept of shame. And guilt is you feel bad about something specific that you did, and therefore you as an individual feel guilty about it. Shame is if you do something bad, it reflects bad on your whole community. It's a shameful act, not just for you, the person, but also for the entire community. So you kind of see both and in the Bible. You see individual responsibility. I did something bad. I feel guilty about it. But you also have kind of the sense of I did something bad and it really reflects bad on my whole community. Both are very powerful sentiments and you need both. But in Asian culture, you kind of gravitate more towards the shame feeling and approach. So I guess maybe comical maybe depressing in some ways, but you know, when an American, like a Western American doesn't get into a particular school, the parents are like, oh, well, you didn't get into Harvard. That's okay. You know, next time, whatever. When a Korean kid doesn't get into Harvard, this is like the whole community is affected by you not getting Mm -hmm. into Harvard. You know, it's like, 
hey, grandpa is rolling over in his grave because you didn't get into Harvard. Wow. <laughs> or the entire Korean community is disappointed in you because you didn't get into Harvard. Now, I'm joking a little bit, but you get the mm-hmm. idea that a person's trajectory in life in the Western culture is very much, this is what an individual experiences and the individual responsibility. Again, that's not a bad thing. It's just part of it. But the other side of that is there's the communal responsibility. There is the sense of, am I letting down my whole community? Not just myself, but my family, my ancestors. Okay. So with all that in the backdrop, so then you end up in the US in this very individualistic kind of mindset and culture. What are some ways that you found yourself in the crosshairs of those two different ways of thinking? (laughs) So as a Korean, I kept hearing from my parents, what you do in the world is going to reflect not just on you as an individual, but it's going to reflect on the Korean community. There's Korean words about shame and embarrassment, and it's hard to translate because it goes much deeper than that. It's not just a feeling of embarrassment or shame. It's the sense of you've let down your community. And I didn't see that with my peers in elementary school and junior high school. I saw that as kind of a uniquely immigrant story of our responsibility, not only for individual accomplishment, but because it reflected on our communities as well. And one of the things that I've heard you say before, and you kind of tell a very personal story of the encounter that you had with your dad years after he left Mm -hmm. over the phone that I think kind of taps into that. Yeah. After my dad left, we didn't hear from him for quite some time. And that's when we were living in the rough neighborhood in Baltimore. And my dad kind of calls out of the blue. I probably hadn't talked to him in about a year, maybe even two years. And he starts asking me all these questions. There were questions that were related to my schoolwork or certain things that I needed to know. And what I remember out of that conversation, it was a fairly brief conversation, was feeling like I had to measure up to a certain standard in order to be accepted by my earthly father. Mm -hmm. And that imposition of that actually created an insecurity about my relationship with my heavenly father. And this is very much the case for many of us. Are the things that we have struggled with with our earthly father oftentimes gets translated into our relationship with our heavenly father. And so a lot of my Christian life has been trying to attain and achieve and do what I needed to do to earn my heavenly father's approval and love in the same way that I wanted to attain and achieve my earthly father's approval and love. And for many years, that has oftentimes meant that I fall in line with a particular way of doing things, particular way of thinking that seems to fit what the dominant culture wanted me to think. Yeah. And one of the things that struck me when you know I was reading about your story is you kind of spotlight the unique role that the church yeah. plays in the lives of especially Korean immigrants. Talk to us a little bit about the role that the Korean church played in your development formation and, you know, the unique role it plays in the culture. As I said, my parents split. My mom was a single mom trying to raise four kids in an inner city neighborhood. And it was really the church, the immigrant church that provided her with a sense of belonging. So she was working really long hours trying to keep her family together. She would work about 10 to 12 hours a day during the day at an inner city carryout. And then at night, she would work about an eight-hour shift at an inner city nursing home. Mm. So her example was, you know, every day I'm in kind of a hostile environment. I can't speak the language that I want to speak. I'm in a culture that I don't understand. But on Sundays, she got to be a deacon. 
She got to be an elder. Mm -hmm. She was the person that was the prayer warrior. And I think about that and say, well, society had put her in a particular bracket. And in fact, around that time, we were living in subsidized housing. We were on food stamps because, you know, financially we couldn't make ends meet. And a president said, someone like my mom was a welfare queen. Mm -hmm. You know, you're a lazy person that's just kind of living off the government. And that's clearly not what my mom was doing. She was working 20 hours a day, six days a week to keep her family together. And she was labeled a welfare queen. Mm. But that's not what she was at church. At church, she was respected. At church, she was the person that you went to for advice and that you went to to have someone pray over you. So the Korean church really gave my mom a wonderful sense of identity as a leader, as a person with influence, as a spiritual giant. And that's something I'm very grateful for, for the immigrant church. Mm, that's an amazing contrast. And it does remind me of the black church in a lot of ways yeah. in terms of both during slavery and, and Jim Crow segregation. And even to this day, yeah. to have a place where regardless of what the world says about you outside, like here you have dignity, value. I'm curious, because at some point you start to have experiences outside of this local, safe, comfortable, you know, supportive yeah. Korean church. What has that been like for you? And what has been the differences you've seen from the church that you grew up in yeah. to, you know, experiencing American churches in a, a different way? Interestingly, the immigrant church is actually a place where culture is less of an issue. Why? Because everybody shares the same culture. So if you have a potluck dinner at an immigrant church, everybody brings food that's familiar. If we have a potluck dinner, I bring kimchi, nobody gets upset. Uh, if I bring that to a, you know other culture church, people are going to get upset not knowing why this smells so bad or why this tastes like this. So culture is, it turns out to be less of an issue in single cultural, single ethnic gatherings because you don't have to explain your culture. You just are your culture. So for me, growing up in the immigrant church, I was able to be affirmed in my cultural identity because who I am was reflected in the church. But when I started encountering other Christian expressions and other church expressions, it was actually when I went to college. I went to college in New York City, and I began to see Christians of different backgrounds and cultures. I began to encounter different ethnic groups with Christian faith, but with different expressions. So it was in college that I went to my very first black church. And just to see, okay, one, there's some stuff that's going on here that's kind of similar to what's going on in the Korean church. Okay. The respect given to elders and the given to the pastors and the clergy. You know, you never call a pastor by their first name. You call them Rev or you call them Bishop. But clearly some things were different. The style of worship was different. The style of preaching, there was some overlap, but there was also differences. What the black church was doing in the community was very different from what the Korean churches were doing in the community. Um, so as I began to kind of move outside of the realm of the Korean church, began to see some of the good work that was going on in other communities as well, it broadened my understanding of this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus, not just to kind of hide out with your friends that look and think like you at an immigrant church, but to actually engage those with different stories, different narratives, different realities and experiences. And that broadened my understanding of God in a way that I am so thankful for. And I'm so thankful that even to this day, particularly a lot of my academic mentors have come from different racial and cultural communities. And that has strengthened my understanding of the church and a strengthened my understanding of God at work in the church. Mm. One of the things that struck me that you wrote is some of the best insights that you've gained about Asian American culture have come from learning from Hispanic theologians. Yeah. And I was like, 
That's an interesting <laughs> thought. Like, yeah. what is it about this aspect of recognizing the stories and the struggles of other people that even gives you insight into your own? Yeah, I think that's something we miss because we've centered one particular narrative, mostly kind of the European, North American narrative, and we don't hear the stories of others. And so for me personally, my spiritual formation and certainly my academic formation owes a huge debt to other ethnic minority groups. Now, I was steeped at Gordon-Conwell and at Columbia University in Western thought. I mean, you've got to read Plato. You've got to read Socrates. You've got to read, you know, kind of all the Western classics. And Gordon-Conwell taught me to understand and appreciate the kind of the Western theology, the Calvins and the Luthers and the Jonathan Edwards. But what really kind of helped me a little further along was having African-American pastoral mentors, having Native American, Latino, Latina, as well as African-American academic mentors. When I first planted the church in Cambridge, I was 20, 29 years old. I was really young. Mm. Planning a church in an inner city neighborhood in Cambridge, I went to nine different African-American pastors and I asked them, would you mentor me? Would you kind of guide me through what it means to be a church planner in this city? Because I needed the support and input of these African-American pastors. I went to nine of them. Eight of them said yes. And the eight that said yes, all of them followed up. I mean, they would call me out of the blue, say, hey, it's time for lunch. Hey, how are you doing? I've been praying for you and praying about you. What are some things I can pray for you about? Even to this day, they're still some of my closest friends and some of my most profound mm. mentors, especially in ministry. And I think about that experience of being mentored by an African-American pastor, many of them, and how I don't know where I would be without that mentoring, without that kind of spiritual influence. My first doctorate degree was at Gordon-Conwell, and I really was blessed with working with with Elden Villafane. He's a Reformed Pentecostal ethics professor at Gordon-Conwell. He's wonderful. Wow. Retired, but you know, I had the chance to study with him. And Umberto Alfaro, who's also a brilliant Latino scholar, teaches at New York Theological Seminary. And they taught me a lot about Hispanic American identity. That was kind of the work that they were doing. And I realized, wow, what they're doing is really informative about my Asian American identity. Of course, in more recent years, I've really had the gift and privilege of working with Native American scholars, Andrea Smith and Mark Charles, of course, my co-author, and Richard Twist, who I got a chance to write a short chapter about his story in a book. These kind of experiences where the cross-cultural, the cross-history, learning from mentors and elders and academics that are coming from a different space than I am, that has profoundly and deeply shaped my faith. I'm trying to connect the dots. Okay, so, you know, you come yeah. out of this Korean church context, you go to Columbia, then yeah. you find yourself going to Gordon-Conwell at seminary, uh-huh. and now you're having this wide range of a United Nations <laughs> level of mentorship. <laughs> like, what prompted you to see that that was an important step to take? Yeah. Because I think it's very instructional and informative for us. So, yeah, using yourself as yeah. an example, like, how did you get there? Yeah, I, you know, I got to say, I'm so thankful to God for the ways he brought many, many different people into my life who 
have shaped me and influenced me. So one of the big first steps was when I went away to college. When I went to college, I was going back into the city, you know, New York City and living right at the kind of the border of Harlem and Spanish Harlem and began to see the gift of God and the move of God in the city. So being able to visit the black church for the first time in my life when I was a college student, encountering Christians who were from a different race and culture and ethnicity. So that began to open my eyes to say, wow, there's God's doing some great stuff. What I saw in uh, Allen AME Church in New York, the work that they were doing in the community was unbelievable. And so I think I just kind of opened my heart and mind to say, I want to learn. It's kind of the intellectual curiosity, the spiritual learning and yearning. I want to learn more. And like I said, I do appreciate my kind of classical education of Greek philosophical thought and reformed theological framing. Those are really, really helpful for me. But I realized that, you know, it's not too bad to learn from other spaces and places and to have that desire to learn from those places. I really appreciate being stretched. I really appreciate having my mind and my brain and my thought process grow rather than be stagnant. I wanted to learn in spaces where I would not be the one in power. I would not be the one that knew everything. I would actually be the outsider and I would be someone who, especially at Harvard, I was you know, maybe the only evangelical there at that time. <laughs> um, but that actually strengthened my evangelical roots as well as stretching me in so many different ways. And when we come back, Dr. Ra will pull back the curtain on what he calls Western cultural captivity, the places where the American evangelical church and potentially you and I have become captive to the distracting and damaging ideas of our surrounding culture. And just a warning, you may want to wear some closed toe shoes because Dr. Ra may step on your toes a bit like he did mine. That's coming up on Where You're From. If you're enjoying where you're from, would you take a moment to write a quick review and give us some stars? Podcast platforms like iTunes and Google promote highly rated shows. So a one sentence review of what this episode or show means to you and a quick five star rating will help these important stories reach more people. Thank you for your help and keep listening for more of where you're from. This episode is brought to you by Preaching Today. Are you tired of chasing down quality sermon illustrations? Need fresh ideas for helping your message connect? Each week, Preaching Today adds fresh content to our database of over 14,000 editor-screened illustrations. Quickly find the right story that will bring your message to life and help your people move closer to God. Get started today at preachingtoday.com. This is Mary Jo Clark, and I'm one of the producers of Where You From. And before we return to our conversation with Dr. Soomchan Ra, I wanted to share a quick teaser into our next conversation with author and Native American activist Mark Charles. That community had no running water and no electricity. And so we moved there completely prepared and ready to live off the grid, right? We're prepared to use the outhouse 50 yards away from the Hogan. We're prepared to cook over a camp stove or an open fire. We're prepared to live by candlelight. We're prepared to haul our water. What we weren't prepared for was the intense marginalization of the Native community. And the only way I can describe it is it felt like we dropped off the face of the earth. That's a sneak peek into our next episode of Where You From with Mark Charles. Now back to this conversation 
with Dr. Soong Chan Ra. There's been multiple references to the phrase captivity throughout church history. And the basic idea of captivity, the way I would define it, is that the church is more captive to the surrounding culture than it is through God's word. So when I say Western cultural captivity, what I'm arguing for is that so much of our American evangelical Christian expressions tend to reflect more Western American ideology and philosophy than actually the Word of God itself. Okay. All right. So could you give us like an example to help us paint a picture of that? Sure. One of the things I point out is this kind of hyper-individualism of Western culture. In fact, it's maybe one of the significant contributions that Western philosophy has made to the world, this idea of individualism. However, when you slip into a hyper-individualism, you begin to lose what the Bible actually says. So one of the examples that I use is that in American churches, for example, we have so many songs that emphasizes the pronoun I or me. Now, is that biblical or is that cultural? Now, again, I'm not saying is it good or bad. I'm just saying that that's a cultural value. And this cultural value of hyper-individualism seems to be more important at times than what the Bible actually says. Like another example would be the 66 books of the Bible. Two, maybe three books of the Bible written to individuals, Mm -hmm. Timothy, Titus, Philemon. But the rest of the Bible is written to communities, the church in Corinth, the church in Philippi the people of God, the nation of Israel, they're not written for an individual audience. They're written for a corporate community, the body of Christ, the people of God. And yet, if you see a lot of our interpretation and certainly our preaching of Scripture, it tends to be on a hyper-individualistic level. Like, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you. I've heard that preached a lot. And it's every single time it's been, you... Larry and John and Mary, I have a plan for your life. No, it's actually a corporate use of the word you. It's not a singular personal you. It's a corporate use of the word you. But because of our hyper-individualistic Western lens, we preach it the way we want to hear it, which is mm. through an individual Okay, Okay, because I think there's another problem with the use of that passage often is that it's overlooked that God is writing that in the context of telling them that they're going to be in captivity and in exile for a longer period of time. That's right. And so prosperity kind of gets translated in maybe a more materialistic right now lens. Is that another aspect of what captivity looks like? Yeah. Individualism and consumerism are oftentimes kind of the flip sides of the same coin, where we believe that church is a commodity to be consumed rather than a community to be a part of, right? Mm. So we want our church to serve us and our consumeristic needs. We've seen this over the last 30, 40 years in the church in particular, where, you know, I talk about the idea of church shopping. Now, that's certainly not in the Bible, but most of us do it. We move into a new neighborhood or a new community or a new part of the country, and we look for a church that fits our needs. We look for a church that we're going to like, that's going to say the things we like, that you know maybe has the programs that we like. We look for buildings that we like. We look for worship styles that we like. And we've kind of lost the value of what it means to be part of a community, warts and all, hmm. part of a community with all the differences that come with a complex community like Christian churches should be. And we embrace a kind of, I want a church that fits my needs. I want a church that checks my list. And so we end up buying church 
church the way we buy a box of cereal. So we end up with choosing churches in a way that is, again, much more Western American culture driven rather than biblically driven. Yeah, and this is a reminder. We probably should put a warning label on this. Professor Ra is a truth teller. So I often <laughs> find myself when I listen to you being like, ooh, man, you stepping on my toes, doc, as we say in the black church. Okay, so materialism, individualism, and there's another ism that, you know, I remember you talking about often that is also reflective of this sense of captivity. And, mm. you know, what's another major blind spot or category of this captivity that you see? In an American society, we can't ignore racism as a category and as a factor in where the church is right now, captivity to racism. Now, and, you know, we, we need to use that term a little more broadly, not just like, does the preacher say bad words from the pulpit? Yeah, that's kind of the way we define racism. It goes much deeper than that. Is there a sense of elevating one culture, race, people group over and against the other? I'll give a quick example of this. I'm Korean, and if you know anything about Korean Americans is we're a passionate people. So if you ever go to Korea, they have these places called prayer mountains where people go to fast and pray. And one thing you'll notice about these prayer mountains, there is not a shred of vegetation anywhere on these mountains. Because when Koreans pray, we get so into it, we knock over trees, we tear down <laughs> bushes, and we rip up grass. And I'm actually not making this up. The prayer life in these prayer mountains are so intense that vegetation can't survive the prayers of the Korean people. So that's my background. That's who I am. But when I came to my current job, and I was a senior pastor before then, but I'm teaching now at a Midwest seminary, I learned <laughs> that my Korean passion doesn't always jibe well with Midwest culture. And one of the first things I learned was something called Minnesota nice. And here's the way Minnesota nice was described to me. It's like a dog that comes up, licks your face. You think, oh, such a friendly dog. At the same time, the dog is peeing on your shoes. <laughs> and so what you're getting is the externality of friendliness. But there's some hostility there that I wasn't quite aware of. Mm. So I, with my Korean passion, walk into a meeting where everybody is operating under Minnesota nice. And when I start getting passionate about something, everybody thinks mm. I'm angry. I'm not angry. I'm just being a Korean. Give me a break. So, you know, I'm in these meetings where there's an assumption that one culture's way of doing things is superior to another culture's way of doing mm -hmm. things. That Minnesota nice is the way to do the, the Christian way. Yes, it's the right Christian way to do things. While the Korean passion is, you know, okay, once in a while you're allowed to do that, but that's not how we do things around here. So these are the places where we elevate or we make primary a certain culture. And whether we call it racism or yeah. not, this is part of American society. And especially in the church, where one people group's expressions is usually assumed to be better or the right way to do things. And yes, we will have, you know, once in a while an, a different cultural expression, but the next week we'll go back to business as usual. And it will oftentimes be Western American culture that's business mm. as usual. Uh, so one of the books I read in seminary was a book about culture, and it created uh, three categories of culture high culture, low culture, and folk culture. And so when they talked about high culture, it was always described in kind of classical Western terms. So high culture, by implication, was a better culture than all the other cultures. So high culture by this book was defined as Shakespeare and Rembrandt and, you know, ballet and Downton Abbey and kind of all these PBS, you know, masterpiece theater type of definitions of culture. So when we use the word like high culture or, you know, normative culture, 
we're actually creating a language where we're saying certain cultures are superior to others without actually even, you know, explicitly stating that. So this exceptionalism is finding its way not only in kind of the partisan politics, but it's finding its way in kind of church expressions as well. Another way we do this, for example, is when we don't give adjectival markers to Western theology. Mm -hmm. We just call it theology. Mm -hmm. So when you start giving markers and adjective markers to other theology, what it does is it creates, oh, that's not quite normal theology. It's not high culture theology. It's a folk culture theology. It's on the fringes. So Calvin, Luther, Edwards, that's normal theology. We don't call it Swiss theology or New England theology. We just call it theology. But hey, that's black theology over there. That's liberation theology there. That's womanist theology over there. And so by creating Creating those kind of adjectival describers, what we end up with is creating a language and a perspective that says certain cultures are normative. This is what we always go back to. It's our baseline. And then other cultures have kind of an add-on. So even in our language, we can kind of move towards, yeah, this culture is the normal and the other cultures are kind of the differences. And all theology comes from a perspective, right? right? That's why I said, hey, Calvin, I love Calvin. I've read him. But he's a Swiss right. theologian. You know, <laughs> He's got a particular framework out of which he's teaching. And Jonathan Edwards clearly is reflecting his culture. Otherwise, he and Cotton Mather would not have right. been slave owners. They're clearly reflecting their cultural norms and limitations and liabilities. And that's, that's fine. But we just have to acknowledge it as such and recognize that theology Theology is an exercise of, again, pursuing truth, not owning truth, mm, but pursuing truth. That's good. And you talk about this having major implications for ministry and the fact that we even export this Western captivity. Yeah. We pack it along and it goes with us when we do missions around the world. Yeah. One thing that yeah. struck me in particular when you wrote about even the way that music ministry all over mm -hmm. the world kind of reflects this kind of same blind spots and cultural captivity. Break that down for us. <laughs> well, I'm not a musician, but I, you know, I've led worship in the past. But the other thing I started noticing was the way that certain genres of music dominate and other genres are put on the side. Uh, so, for example, in the Psalms, which is the worship life of Israel, of the 150 Psalms, about 60% of those Psalms are Psalms of praise. Victory, triumph, God is good, God is awesome. We should sing those songs. But 40% of those Psalms are Psalms of lament, which talk about pain and suffering. We desperately need you, God. We need you to bring your justice in places of injustice. That's 40% of the Psalms. And you see this over and over again throughout the scriptures. Yes, there are places where we worship God for all the good that he has done and who he is, but there are definitely places where we are encountering suffering and pain and we cry out to God in the midst of that suffering and pain. And so that's a bias that I think we've developed over the years to say praise and celebration is good, pain and suffering and lament are not appropriate in the church context. So, for example, a community that does not kind of follow this pattern of overemphasis on praise and diminishing of lament is the African-American church. The black church knows how to do lament in its worship and in its liturgy because it's a part of the story of the slave narrative, the Jim Crow narrative. And out of those narratives emerged this deep, deep lament that actually counters the dominant culture narrative of success and triumph. So our worship life is very much shaped by our setting in life, our experiences, our context. 
And so the narratives of lament in the black church, the narrative of suffering in the immigrant church, those are important balancing to the narrative of triumph that we oftentimes see in the dominant culture. And I know you're kind of known as the lament guy, right? Like that's (laughs) you single-handedly brought lament into the uh, Christian consciousness uh, over the last few years. But was there something about your own personal story that made the reality of lament more real to you? Yeah, that's a great question. My family is an immigrant family, grew up in the context of suffering. My mom as a single mom understood suffering. My dad's story as an immigrant trying to make it in American society was part of that suffering. So I tell this story about my mom where this was about 20 years ago, she was in her 60s, and she showed me the condition of her knees. And where each of us have like one kneecap on each knee, she had five. Mm. And the reason she had five kneecaps on each knee is that she had been in prayer, lament prayers, and especially interceding for her children and her grandchildren. She prayed on her knees every day, at least an hour or two a day, uh, praying for her church, her family, her children, her grandchildren. And when you're doing that for decades, your knees actually can't take that kind of pressure. And so her knees cracked open. And her knees now conformed to the shape of the floor so that she can kneel before God every day. And that kind of lament is what we're missing in the church. We forget that so much of the growth of the church, the health of the church, is really not having nice sanctuaries and having good programs. It's oftentimes the prayers of the grandmothers, Mm. the lament of the parents and the lament of the senior citizens who know what it's like to suffer and to cry out to God in the midst of that suffering. Mm. But out of that came a beautiful story of how God works through pain and suffering, not in spite of, but maybe even through pain and suffering. And that's what lament is. It's acknowledging the reality of pain and suffering and responding to God as a result of that pain and suffering. Okay, so practically, what does that look like? Because sometimes I'm like, okay, lament, be sad. Like, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) One of the key things about lament is that at heart, lament is truth-telling. Because it tries to explain this is the world as it actually is. Not the way we want it to be, which is not a bad thing, but not the way we think it should be. But this is the world as it actually is. And so what lament does is it gives us a snapshot of reality, of pain and suffering that is in the world. And that's a really good first step forward. Richard Sennett, a NYU philosopher, put it this way, without a disturbed sense of ourselves, why would any of us ever want to change? Mm -hmm. So if we're saying we want to grow, we want to be discipled well, we want to be spiritually formed, we want to see transformation, spiritual transformation and growth in our lives, that first step might be that sense of disruption, a disturbed sense of ourselves. And that's what truth-telling does. That's what lament does. It tells the truth. So yes, it's not an easy task, but it is such an essential and necessary task because it is oftentimes the lament and the truth-telling, the first step towards growth, the first step towards change. Okay. So telling the truth, what else? Telling the truth and hearing from voices that we don't always hear from is part of that truth-telling for me. So my commentary on the Book of Lamentations, one of the things I look at is the authorship of the Book of Lamentations. Mm -hmm. It was credited to Jeremiah, mainly because Jeremiah would have been the maybe the only literate person left after the exile. But one of the problems is that Jeremiah and Lamentations, two different books of the Bible, have very, very starkly different writing styles. The comparison I make is Shakespeare and Tupac. (laughs) Both are great writers, 
probably not the same person because their writing styles are very, very different. Let Jeremiah Lamentation, very similar story. So what's the deal? Well, Jeremiah probably wrote down the words of the Book of Lamentations, the lament, but they aren't his words. He's the curator. He's the editor. Mm. He's the narrator behind it. But the words themselves are from the women, the widows, the orphans, the children, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and the sick, the most disenfranchised and marginalized of that society, so much so that they were actually left behind because they can't mm-hmm. do anything. They can't fix this. And so part of lament and the steps forward is actually the hearing of stories from those who have been hurt the most. And so I go back to some of our conversations on race. I want to hear the stories of the African-American community. I want to hear the stories of the Native communities, because they have a story that needs to be told and listened to. So lament is actually the listening and hearing of the voices we tend to silence. So lament as truth-telling means we've got to hear all the different voices. If that's one of the products of lament, that we actually begin to hear the voices of the disenfranchised in our society and in our church, that's a huge step Mm. forward. Uh, But then those of us who come alongside, and this is what's beautiful about Jeremiah, you see this in the book of Jeremiah as well as Lamentations, Jeremiah begins to own the sin much more as he hears the voices of the people. And instead of saying, they have sinned, O God, he doesn't even say, we have sinned, O God. He says, I have sinned, O God. And if we know the story of Lamentations, Jeremiah, he was the one person that didn't do the things that God said you mm. did, which was you know worship false idols or trust in false prophets. That was not Jeremiah. He was on the right side. And yet Jeremiah says, I have sinned, O God. And so that truth-telling, that listening to the marginalized voices should really lead us to places where we cry out in repentance and confession. Okay, and I'm sure you've heard this before, but the reactions yep. I've, I've gotten to, <laughs> wait a minute, corporate confession, that's not biblical. Right. Ezekiel tells us that God does not judge us for the sins of the Father. Right. You know, I, I can't right. confess. I wasn't involved. My family wasn't a part yep. of the slave trade. You know, yeah. I can't be guilty for privilege. How do you respond to those <laughs> type of, yeah. Well, I mean, we've got to look at the whole canon of scripture. And that's why Jeremiah is such an inspiration to me that, again, the person that you could argue, say, is the most innocent person at that Mm. time, the least guilty person, is also the most confessing person Mm. at that time. So I think the scriptures testifies to a both and rather than just one side of the story. Yes, individually speaking, this is the hyper-individualism of Western culture, individually speaking, you're right, you did not own a slave. Individually speaking, you're right, you did not take land away from a Native American. But are we not part of a system that actually did those things. And there is a structural corporate responsibility that comes with that. I was speaking at Harvard University a few years ago to a group of Asian American students. I was talking about corporate sin. And actually, honestly, I can understand why. They were like, they were not getting it and not probably agreeing with what I was saying. Because if you want to trace a group that is innocent, like Jeremiah, it would be Asian Americans. Because we really weren't around when slavery went Mm -hmm. down. We really weren't around when the land was being taken away from Native Americans. So what I did say is like, here you are at Harvard University on land that at one point had been owned by Native Americans that was stolen from them through broken treaties uh, and also money that was a product of the slave trade. So that's a societal social issue, not just one person that took one land from one person. It was a social system that actually 
oppressed and took land and labor away from another social system and social groups. And certainly those Asian American uh, Harvard students, they have benefited from that oppressive system. And so do we need to confess not only what happened, but also the fact that we have benefited from that system and that the structures that we've built were built on that kind of injustice. And if these systems were built on injustice and we continue to benefit from it, then there is a degree of responsibility that we have and in some form acknowledging that. Yeah, and I'm curious to look at the aftermath as you look at the lament and prophetic lament. Mm -hmm. And how do you think the church has changed since that work has come out? And do you have Mm -hmm. a sense of different perspective of where we are or where we need to be or how much further we need to go in order to continue to build that out? Yeah. Yeah, I always looked at lament as a starting point rather than an end point. Because lament in the Bible doesn't end with just the external expression of our lament and suffering and pain. For example, in the book of Lamentations, the saying of lament is done in a public arena. It's a protest. It's a public protest against their circumstances, and it's actually directed towards God. So if it's okay to direct our protest towards God and to let God know what we are going through, I think it's legitimate to do that in American society as well. I think lamentations and the laments in the Bible give us permission to do that, and it gives us actually maybe some guidelines on how to do that. So I don't think of lament as simply a end point, but it is a beginning point and a launching pad of sorts to say, how can we do this together? And I would hope that leads us to action. As we see in the Old Testament, we see lament leading to action. We see the people coming out of Lamentations. We do get the restoration of Jerusalem. We do get the rebuilding of the temple. And you know these are things that actually happen because the people are willing to tell truth to each other. And I think if we're going to move forward, and that's what my concern is, that we kind of see lament, all right, we've done our part, now let's move on. No, lament is a spiritually formative action, but it does also lead to further mm. action. And if lament raises our awareness of injustice, then the next step is, then let's confront gotcha. that Gotcha, because one of the things that's happened over the last five years has been what some are calling the largest protest movement in American yeah. history. And yeah. Professor Ra, we actually have your friend, Mark yes. Charles, coming on. You know, I'm going to be talking to him next about the book you guys co-wrote together, Unsettling yes. Truths. Tell us what we can expect. And also, uh-huh. like, what's something I should ask him to kind of nudge him? You know, we want to give him a little bit of smoke that comes from his friends, <laughs> you know, so we can mess with him a bit. So, yeah, give us some <laughs> intel. <laughs> well, I will say this. You asked Mark a question, and he will not have a shortage okay. of answers. The brother knows so much and has such insight that whatever question you ask, you will get a wealth of information and a wealth of very thoughtful and well-engaged content. I would say uh, block off three or four hours rather than just a couple of hours of time with with Mark because he has so much to say and he has such good insight. I, I really appreciate Mark's heart. I really appreciate him as a friend and really appreciate him as a mentor, but as a spiritual pastor to me over the years. Mm. And I would love to see that come out in, in the interview as well. That was Dr. Soon Chan Ra introducing us to his friend and co-author, Mark Charles, the former presidential candidate and Native American leader and theologian who will join us next week on Where You're From to discuss their book, Unsettling Truths, the ongoing dehumanizing legacy of the doctrine of discovery. This book and our conversation next week is, to be honest, disturbing, but also so important for anyone who wants to understand 
How America Justified the Removal and Genocide of Native Peoples. There's a link to purchase this book in the show notes. The book will also be the primary topic of discussion next week when I ask Mark Charles where you're from. And don't forget, the show notes also contain a link to a free digital download titled Oh Freedom, a 20-day devotional celebrating legacies of the Black church. To get this free digital download, just click on the link in the show notes or visit our website, whereyou'refrom.org. That's where, Y-A, from, dot O-R-G. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Russell Berry reminding you, it's not just about where you're at. It's also about where you're from. This show was produced by Mary Jo Clark and Daniel Ryan Day and was engineered by Gabrielle Boward. I also want to give a quick shout out to Barry and Ann for their help in supporting and promoting Where You're From. Where You're From is part of the Voices Collection from Our Daily Bread Ministries.